It's great to see you guys. Very at my welcome. I'm James. I lead the team in New Community, and uh, we are today carrying on. Well, we're actually finishing off part one of our Mark series. Um, next week is Christmas. And uh, so we're kind of concluding today, Mark part one, uh, in finishing off chapter nine into chapter 10. And then we will do Mark part two uh, in March, building up to, uh, to Easter, the second part of, of Mark's gospel from chapter 11 onwards, basically deals with the, the final week of Jesus's life. So we've kind of looked at the first eight chapters or so, so far, breakneck speed, miracles, all pointing towards uh, Jesus and Jesus asking the question, who do you say I am? And uh, Peter finally says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And chapters 9 and 10, kind of a bit of a hinge moment there. What's this Christian life look like? And as we looked at last week, this kind of the Christian life, the reality is there are these mountaintop moments of, wow, this is, this is amazing. Everything's stunning. Wow, in the presence of God. And then lots of pain and confusion, and difficulty, and trial, and, and hardship, and we looked at how those two things worked uh, worked out together last week. If you missed it, you can check it out online, or you can come again tonight. Um, I'm speaking last week's message tonight at 6 o'clock church over in Sidcup, because we had a beer and carols event last week in in uh, in Sidcup, which had, I don't know, 240 or so, mainly students there, people responding to the gospel, which was uh, really exciting. People responding to the gospel at carol services, um, actually praying and putting their trust in Jesus. It was stunning. Jesus is alive. I've just come from the Sidcup venue this morning where we baptized three blokes um, who have all just become Christians recently, just the most powerful testimonies. Um, we had the kids in, so they had to be the PG version of the testimonies, which was the kind of, I've done a few things I shouldn't have done, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and, um, but their, their actual stories, just stunning stories, Jesus being alive uh, and saving people today. And today we're carrying on uh, continuing what the Christian life looks like. And sometimes we, we make it really complicated, or we just overcomplicate it. Um, sometimes... We don't realize how much our culture is influencing us, how much we're viewing uh, the Christian life and what it means to follow Jesus through the lens of the world rather than through the lens of the word. And we're all being influenced from one place. And if you're not being influenced by the word of God, then you are going to be influenced by the world in which you live. And when pain and trial and everything we looked at last week and things that are confusing and difficulties happen in our lives, if we're not being shaped by and influenced by the word of God, then we're going to assume something's gone wrong and we're going to respond accordingly and we're going to act as if something, well, God can't love me then because of this or what's happening. And Actually, if we're shaped by the word of God, understand what this Christian life is, when we hit those moments, we go, ah, okay, I've come down the mountain. I need some mountaintop moments in between. And we begin to see it like that. And we look in today, we're going to pick up in verse 33 of chapter nine. We're looking today that following Jesus is not necessarily what we expect. So let's pick up verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, these are the disciples, and when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? If you think back to last week, there was a moment where there was loads of arguing and stuff. And that's what he's referring to. But they kept silent because they'd learned their lesson. And they were also, no doubt, a little bit embarrassed. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, which always makes me truckle. We're hanging around with Jesus and we're arguing about who might be the greatest. We've seen all the miracles that he's done and we think, well, I think I'm pretty good. It's like, oh yeah, go for it, bro. Well done. 
And he sat them down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus immediately says, If, if you're going to follow me, this is what it looks like. And he turns our assumptions straight away on its heads. Like rank in, was a critical issue in ancient life. Right, so there was this sect, at, um, a place called Qumran, and every year they would reevaluate all their members. So literally, they would rank everybody every year. You're number one position, you're all the way down to however many you were. And literally, everyone would know exactly where they were in position. And every year, they'd reevaluate it again, which determined their seating order and their speaking order and who got to eat first and all the rest of it. So your position was quite important because the higher up you were, the better the food, presumably, and the more you got to speak and, and people listen to you. And now, we might not be as explicit. Hey, Elton Venue, the number one person here is... <laughs> And we work away. No, we would never be as explicit as that. And yet, rank is still a critical issue today. Like, we all want to be a somebody. Like, we all are concerned with what other people think of us. We all want to kind of at least look like we've got it together and we're doing quite well with our lives and we're being quite impressive. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen, don't be thinking the way the world does. You're viewing things through the lens of the world again. You need to view it through the word. It says the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God is upside down in nature. It doesn't work the way the world does. And to emphasize the point, he starts talking about children. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now, it's important to understand here that, um, that children held a very lowly place in the Greco-Roman world. They were powerless, like literally powerless. They, I mean, I know they're not particularly powerful today, but they have more power today than they used to. They, are, they were completely lowly in those days. And Jesus here talks about them in stunning terms. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Wow. Jesus kind of makes a somewhat cryptic, but stunning statement here flick over to verse 13 of chapter 10 for a moment where he picks it back up again and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them but when Jesus saw it he was indignant and said to them let the children come to me do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God truly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not empty enter it and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Whoa. Jesus is making some big statements here. Many people thought the kingdom of God would be achieved by force. Others thought that the kingdom of God would be achieved and brought in by sort of moral reform. Well, just everyone would start behaving better now. But no one expected that the kingdom to come by being powerless like children. And Jesus makes another seemingly cryptic statement about children here. He says, if you're going to know me, you must be spiritually childlike. You want to understand what the Christian life really is. You want to understand the nature of being a Christian, be like a child. And it's a little bit difficult to understand. And if we carried on reading, we'd see that the rich young ruler, the rich young man, he really doesn't get it. But flick over to verse 35 for a moment, because not too long later, James and John show that they really have no idea what Jesus is talking about at all. And in verse 35, they say, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand 
and one at your left in glory. They're kind of like, they don't get it at all. They're sort of immediately making a power grab. But Jesus, we, um, we, you, you know we're the best, right? You know, like, of all of the, your followers, we're the, we're the top two guys. So we want the top two places on your team, please. I want to sit at your right-hand side, which uh, kind of was a, as a position of real authority, sitting at the right-hand side of whoever was the king. It was not something that just could be dished out to any old person. They're like, we're the best, we'll have it. And Jesus says, you guys have no idea, do you? You really haven't been listening at all. You've definitely not been understanding all this child stuff at all. And so Jesus, in order to clarify his teaching, he begins to tell them again about his death. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's the way the world works. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus again and again and again repeats the same things to his disciples until they get it. And he speaks the same things again and again and again to us until we get it. I don't know if you've ever kind of had that experience where you're reading through scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, whichever one you think, I feel like I've read this before. This is the same story again or the same message again. And that is basically of scripture. It's the same God speaking and reminding us again of this truth. No, you've forgotten it. Let me tell you again, this truth. No, you've forgotten it. Let me tell you again, this truth. No, you're not living it again. Let me tell you. And Jesus does exactly the same thing. He's continually telling and speaking to his disciples and speaking, therefore, to us and reminding us of what's of most importance. Even at the end of Revelation, Revelation 2, at the end of the Bible, he says, you've forgotten your first love. He calls us again and again. And here's the reality. Each and every single one of us, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. If you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of this. We need a constant and consistent and continual reminder of the essential, primary nature of the Christian life. Because we so often make it about other things. Or we think, well, it can't really mean that. It must mean this. And it's amazingly how often when we do that, we kind of make it like a version that we think it should be. And that the world thinks it should be. Or so often we forget the truth of the gospel. Or we forget the, the things that Jesus speaks of. Or we kind of feel like we've moved beyond that. Well, that's like the ABCs, and I'm now into at least Ds, Es, and Fs, and need to move on from these things. It's like, no, 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 this, Jesus says, is what I'm reminding you of. This is what it is to follow me. This is the Christian life, and you need a reminder, and we're getting one today, through what Jesus is speaking to us of this gospel, and a reminder of how we respond to the gospel, because Jesus says, to enter the kingdom, you must be like a child. You must be like a child. So how does that work? Well, we're going to do in these few short moments we've got left is, is just look at these verses backwards. And we're starting verse 45, chapter 10, verse 45, understanding what it is that Jesus came to do. Look at verse 45. It came to give his life. Now, I know we know this, but let's just be really crystal clear here. He means be killed. His whole life was heading to the cross. 
That's why the second part of Mark's gospel is just the final week of his life. It's all heading that way. Everything we've looked at over the last eight weeks find its fulfillment and its conclusion in the cross. That was where his life is heading. And in a few weeks' time, we're going to celebrate his birth. He was born to die. Now, we all die, but we're born to live and then we die as a consequence of, of kind of old age, hopefully. But he was born to die and he knew it. And he intentionally laid down his life. And viewed through the world's lens, viewed through the world's eyes, this is a big failure. Just think about it for a moment. Founders of successful world religions, they don't die young. That's tragedy. That, that's a failure. Founders of successful world religions, what they're supposed to do is live old, conquer all their enemies, have some victories, lay down a whole load of teaching, get a big army of followers, and everybody follows them and goes, yeah, that's successful. You die young. We, history generally forgets about you. You die having tried to establish something, and, well, common sense is, well, you, you didn't work out so well. You died. Like, can't really be true. And common sense says the story should not and could not ever have continued as far as it has. And yet it is. This morning, just hearing testimonies of three proper blokes, grown-up men, who had searched here, there, and everywhere, and then encountered Jesus and had their lives transformed. Each of us in this room has got our own story of encountering Jesus or on a journey of encountering Jesus. Common sense says it should have all ended when he died. And yet here we are. And the answer to why that's the case lies in what happened to the Jesus' disciples. You see, the disciples overcame common sense. Common sense says Jesus is dead, it's all over. But something happened to this bunch of very ordinary people. Something that turned the cross from proof of defeat into a source of joy and power and inspiration. And the key to understanding this is not understanding that he died, we know he did, but why he died. And when you move in your understanding from, from what to why, things really change. So why did Jesus die? And verse 45 here gives us the answer. This is so crucial. This is the reminder. We go, yeah, we know. No, no. This is the, the reminder of, the, of the, the centrality, the primacy of the gospel. Verse 45 gives us the answer. He died as a ransom for many. And ransom for us, that word gives us images of kidnappers and sometimes decent but more often not rubbish films where there's ransom notes and exchanges and don't call the police and all that. We understand the concept of a ransom. We get it. And in biblical days, it was also a very familiar image, but for very different reasons. You see, ransom was the price that you paid to liberate a slave or a prisoner of war, to set someone free. So there had been a war, two sides obviously fighting, and one side wins. And if you're on the losing side, one of three things happens to you. You get killed, or you become a slave, or you run and join the other team. And basically what happened is they would, uh, if, you, if you weren't killed, if you survived, you would be taken as a prisoner of war. You would be put into terrible, grinding slavery. There was a punishment for losing the war. Didn't have nice kind of like, um, we'll look after you camps. It was no, a real serious punishment for it. And ransom was the price that the losing side had to pay in order to bring back the slaves. And it was a huge price to pay to bring back the prisoners of war. It was a punishment for losing a war. Terrible slavery. And the truth is, without Jesus, that's exactly where we are or once were, in terrible, grinding slavery. We were, we were captives. And the gospel is good news 
But good news is only ever good news to people who know that they need good news. See, the promise of healing is wonderfully good news to a sick person, but it doesn't really get the attention of somebody who's healthy. Like, well, it's good for you, but I don't need it, so it's not, not good for me. Or if getting a thousand pounds at Christmas to pay for everything is probably good news for most of us in this room, but if you're a multimillionaire, you say, well, I don't, I don't hugely need it. It's, it's, it's good for you, but it doesn't, it's not good news to me. It doesn't really add anything. The reality is, good news is only good news if you understand the depth of the bad news. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is both the worst and the best news ever. And understanding both and the reasons for both will change your life forever. And it will change your life from that, even in that moment of just going through the motions sometimes, because much of the Christian life is a sense of it just feels a bit mundane. Just we're going through this again. And just the same thing happened this week as happened last week. And the same thing will probably happen next week. And there's a little few moments, but no, no, no. Reminding yourself of this transforms the mundane into something quite remarkable. And the bad news is really bad. And it's summed up by one little word, sin, that we don't like to talk about very much, but the Bible makes a really pretty big deal about it. And in one sense, we all know that we're sinners. Like, we all know that we're sinners. The Bible, we, we, we get that. We often describe sin as being anything short of perfection. And we all know we've done stuff or thought stuff that is short of perfection. And so we kind of all know we're guilty. But to be honest with you, that, that description of sin, anything short of perfection, it doesn't really do justice to the weight of sin. It, sin is so much more than that. And we can understand the depths and the brokenness of sin by thinking of five words that will hopefully appear here. Separation, inability, delusion, judgment, and hopelessness. So if you weren't feeling cheery a moment ago, you are now. Let's look at these for a moment. First, because of sin, we exist in a, in a from-birth state of separation from God. That's the reality of sin. We are separated from God. We were, every single one of us, were created in God's image to know him. But separation from God robs us of the core reason for our existence. It's why we go looking for it. So why we go looking to fill that kind of, that gap that we have for affirmation and longing and hope. We, 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 each of us is built and made and created in the image of God and sin separates us from God. So therefore, the very reason we exist is now removed from us. We're robbed of it. And second thing is that sin then renders us unable. It makes it impossible for us to think as we were made to think. Sin isn't just doing something wrong. It, it renders us completely unable to think in the way that we're created to think. It renders us unable to desire what we were created to desire. So we begin to desire evil and wrong things. It renders us unable to speak as we were designed to speak or to behave as God intended for us to behave. We are not able to live as we were created to live. Such is the depth of sin. And because sin blind blinds it also leaves us with our third word in a constant state of delusion because of sin we think we know ourselves well but we really don't we think we've got a good handle on ourselves we think we understand ourselves we think we know how we tick or why we think like we do we really don't we look at ourselves and because of sin we we think that we're more righteous than we actually are and because we do we we don't seek the help that we desperately need 
I think I can sort it out. I got it sorted. I know. I know this. I behave like this. I act like this. I, I will sort. No, no, no. Sin renders us completely unable and in a complete state of delusion. We think we're okay. We think we're not that bad when in reality we really are. But on top of these kind of seeming disasters, there's something even more terrible. Sin doesn't just leave us separate from God. It places us in our fourth word under judgment from God. Because we've rebelled against him, because we've demanded our own way, because we have again and again and again broken his law, we are subject now to judgment. He sets the law. He sets the rules. He writes the law. We break it and judgment comes. And then the fifth word, finally, sin leaves us hopeless. You see, since sin is fundamentally not about what we do, although that is part of it, since sin fundamentally is a matter of the heart, since sin is a condition of our nature, it is impossible for us to escape it on our own. If we, would, if we could, we would have done already. We would have figured it out. We are under sin's destructive effects, under its power, and there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. And Paul in Ephesians 2 describes our lives apart from the amazing grace of the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as having no hope and without God in the world. This is like really bleak. Next time, if you're a believer here today, next time you oh, my life is a bit boring and mundane, just think on this for a moment. This is where you once were. This is the reality of life without Jesus. None of this is good news. In fact, it's really, really dark, terrible news. Sin is really, really serious. And Jesus talks of the consequences of sin at the end of chapter 9. Some of you were quite glad I skipped over those verses earlier. Well, we're going back there now. Sin's so serious, Jesus talks of the consequence of it as hell. And we don't talk about hell anywhere near enough. We don't talk about it in church anywhere near enough. And yet, Jesus talks about it quite a lot. And in verse 44 of chapter 9... He describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. And he says, deal with sin. Look at verse 46 of chapter 9. He says, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Ooh. The consequences of sin are terrifying. Hell, whatever exactly it looks like, Jesus makes it clear. Hell is horrific. Hell is terrifying. Hell is eternal. And yet hell is also completely avoidable. And this is where the good news comes in. Because it's only by understanding the seriousness and the depravity and the depths of sin and the seriousness of the consequences of sin and the seriousness of the depravity and the depths and the eternal destructive nature of hell that we understand why good news is truly good news. Look back at verse 45 of chapter 10 for a moment. Jesus says, I am a ransom for many. I'm a ransom for many. He says, we were slaves to sin. We were those who were dead in our trespasses. We were those who were separated. We were unable to do anything about it. We were suffering and suffering judgment. And we were without hope. We can't do anything to get ourselves out of this situation. But God can and God did. 
And he says, an enormous ransom has been paid to get the slaves back, to get the prisoners of war back, to get you and I back. And to set a person free like this was known as redemption. And Jesus is, in saying that his life is a ransom for many, is describing the action of setting us free by redeeming us. We were stuck as slaves, spiritually speaking. We were locked up in in guilt and in shame and fear and anxiety and death. And redemption shows the lengths to which God himself goes to bring us out of those things and into the life that he would have us live. Now, in one sense, redemption is sort of difficult to grasp, but in another sense, it really not. We use the language of redemption all the time. So we can talk in football. If you're a football fan, we can talk of a goalkeeper redeeming himself. There was a big mistake. In the first half, he let a daft goal in. Like we made, He made a huge mistake. And yet in the second half, he saved two penalties. The team went on to, one and we, to win, and we say he's redeemed himself. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. We have made a huge mistake, and then Jesus redeems us. He buys us out of the mess that we're in. Or we talk of redeeming a voucher, like you get a voucher for a supermarket or a garden center or... I don't know, if your family can't think of a good thing to buy you at Christmas, you get like a voucher for something. And you end up going, I have this voucher, this little slip of paper or this code on my phone or whatever it might be. And I want something that you've got in your shop or your experience or your garden center or whatever. And so I'm going to give you this in exchange for that. You've got something that's valuable to me. And so I'll give you this and I get that in in exchange, in return. That's exactly what God does for us in redemption. He redeems us by giving something in exchange for us. He says, here's my son, and you are that valuable to me. I want you, so I'm going to give him in exchange for you. Or you can redeem a mortgage. Some of us at the stage of life where this feels like this is a long way off, endlessly just paying out money, whether hundreds or thousands of pounds, every single month goes out, and it's just like, oh, never, ever going to come to the end of it. Some of you have got to the other end of that and gone, woohoo, I've redeemed my mortgage I once was in huge debt and now I'm not. I'm free. And that's exactly what God has done for us. You were once in huge debt and now you're not. I've paid it and you're free. Or my favorite movie, Shawshank Redemption, he's in prison and then he's not. He's let out. He's given freedom. Once he was captive, now he's not. That's exactly what God has done for us. There's a transaction, an exchange has set place. We were once captives, but now we're free. And a key biblical picture to all of this is found in the Exodus story. So if you ever read through Exodus, we looked at some of it last week, or you've ever watched The Prince of Egypt, you've seen a version of this story. In, in the Exodus, Jewish people who are in slavery in Egypt, about 1,400, 1,600 centuries before Jesus, are liberated from slavery because God says, if you kill a lamb and you eat it for dinner, and then you smear its blood on your doorpost, when I send the angel to come and judge the Egyptians for their oppression of you, you will be set free because you've got the blood on your door. And exactly the same way, Jesus comes to us and says, if you put your trust in me, if you have the blood of the Lamb of God over your doorpost, then you will be freed when I come round to judge. You will come out of slavery into freedom and you will have all the promises of God, all this inheritance I want to give you because you have been bought out of slavery by the blood of a slain lamb, Jesus Christ. Redemption is the stunning picture of the reality that God himself has gone and said, there is something that I want that is of so much value to me, and it's you, by the way, not just the person next to you, it's you. You are of such value to me, says God, 
that I want to redeem you. I want to give something in exchange for you. God says, right now, right here today, he says to you, and some of us immediately think, well, no. He says to you, you are that valuable to me. I'm going to give my son in exchange for you. You have been ransomed. You have been redeemed. You've been bought with a great price. And it's truly good news. So how do we connect with this? How do we receive this? If we're not a Christian here today, how do you receive this redemption? How do you receive this, uh, this ransom, this good news? Or if you are a Christian here today, how do you, if you've already done it once, presumably, that's why you're a Christian, how do you stay living in the good of it? And Jesus says the answer is become like a child. It's how you inherit the kingdom of God. It's how you first receive it and it's how you will receive it. And it's how you go on inheriting, go on receiving it. Look at verse 13 of, of chapter 10 again. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But children, no. That's the word, like powerless. But oh, no, you've got to get. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's not just a one-time thing. We'll see that in a moment. It's an ongoing thing. You don't receive the kingdom of God like a child. You're not going to enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, we know that this is a metaphor, right? Jesus is not saying you need to become like a little child again. You need to become an chip little child. He's saying you need to become like a child. And it's not about becoming spiritually childish, but becoming spiritually childlike. How? Well, for a moment, just think how children behave. Now, there's all sorts of ways we could look at this, but just two main things that I just want to focus on on how children behave and how I think, spiritually speaking, we, it is to become childlike. And the first is, this, is that children are totally dependent. Children are totally dependent. They really can't do things themselves. And so to be spiritually childlike, you have to feel totally helpless. In the scheme of things, children are pretty powerless. Like, they can't really do anything. Like my kids can't really do anything particularly. I mean, still can't tie their shoelaces and things like that. And you think, oh, come on. Nor can they do anything of real seriousness. They can't. If we were just to leave them, life would not go very well for them for very long. They're completely dependent. To become childlike, you need to feel totally helpless. You need to recognize first time around that you cannot get yourself free. You cannot get yourself free from the things that you're caught up in. If you could, you would have done it by now. The thing that you're facing right now, whether if, even if you are a believer and you think, well, I'll, I'll sort this out, I'll get it sorted, you are not going to be able to or else you would have already done it. And even if you think, well, I've kind of got most things sorted. I'm not a Christian, but I've got most things sorted. What are you going to do when you face the whole death thing that you're going to face one day? You've got to recognize that. In and of yourself, you're totally helpless. And so to be childlike is to, to totally rely on what God has done for you in everything and to go on being childlike. See, our problem as, as believers, as Christians, is that we grow old. Like, obviously physically, but I mean spiritually. We grow old and we stop being childlike. And we become self-reliant. And we begin to think, I know how this thing works. I know how to handle this Christian life. And we forget because we start viewing things through the lens of the world rather than through the word of God. We forget the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And we forget 
that we are at our most powerful when we realize that we're actually powerless. Because it's precisely in that moment where we come to the end of ourselves and our power that we become to the beginning of God and all the power in the universe belongs to him. And the way of the world says, no, you need to get more powerful, you need to get more wise, you need to be more self-sufficient, you need to be smarter, you need to be stronger, you need to be better. And the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God says the way to more power is to recognize that you're actually powerless. Stop trying to do it yourself and come to me. In me, says the Lord, resides all the power in the universe. I created it, I sustain it, and it's all available at your disposal when you quit trying to do it yourself when you quit trying to work it out yourself, when you quit trying to come up with the answers yourself, when you quit trying to get better yourself, being like a child is to recognize, in and of myself, I am powerless. But turning to him, I become powerful. And it's completely upside down way of thinking. And it fights against our very nature because we don't like feelings of helplessness and feelings of powerlessness. But the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, you want the power of God? Quit thinking you've got it all sorted yourself. And some of us are in situations right now where we're struggling. We're desperately trying to hold it all together. We're trying to sort it all out. We're trying to fix it ourselves. We're trying to use our own wisdom to solve the problem. And the answer is to be more childlike. Not childish, childlike. Recognizing our powerlessness because the totally powerless learn simply to depend on their heavenly father. My children come and ask me to do things because they know they can't do it themselves. And guess what? When they ask me, it gets done. They can't fix something. They can't open something. They can't close something. They can't dress themselves, whatever it might be. They ask me, it gets done. They try and do it themselves. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And being totally dependent can sometimes, well, actually not sometimes, always actually is hard. It's childishness that leads us to think we know best. It's childlikeness to recognize that we don't. It's childishness that leads us to think, hey, God, it's this way, thank you. We're going, my life is going this way. This is the direction. This is, this is where we're going. No, 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 God, this, this is where. That's childishness. It's childlikeness to recognize that he's driving and we're in the back seat strapped in. It's childishness to go, are we nearly there yet? Well, how long is it going to take? Why are we going this way? Can we stop at the services? It's childishness. Can I watch your DVD? It's childishness. To act like that, it's childlikeness to recognize he's the one driving. I'm going to get on with my coloring sticker book. (laughs) I'm not even going to try and get myself into the big tomes of mighty volumes of word that I don't understand. This is the lane I've been in, and that's okay for me. Coloring in's fine. He's in charge. He's driving. I'm not. I often reflect on the Exodus. I've talked about it a lot recently because I've been reading it. The moment God led his people out of Israel... The path he took them on to the promised land, if you look at maps and you read it through, it was not the shortest. It was not the most obvious one. It was not the one that they would have chosen in their own wisdom. Frankly, it was a roundabout way to the promised land, which provided, and you think, why does he do that? Well, it's because it provided God with the perfect setting to rescue his people again and again and again, just as he had promised, and to demonstrate to them his unfailing presence and his perfect plan in every single moment. And he's doing exactly the same with us today. He's leading us to the, towards the eternal promised land. He's rescuing his people and he's demonstrating his unfailing presence and his unfailing plan in every moment. 
the question we're faced is, are we going to be childish about it or are we going to be childlike about it and trust him and follow him? And when we can't see the future clearly, childlikeness patiently seeks God through his word, through prayer, and through the counsel of godly believers. Childishness says, I'll sort it out. I don't need other people and I'm not going to talk about it. Childishness is when problems hit, I back off because it's probably better for me to not be in church for a little bit because it's actually it's a bit painful for me or it's painful for other people. It's probably better I'm, I, I, no. Childlikeness goes, in this moment, I'm patiently going to seek God through the word, through prayer and through the counsel of others. Childishness goes, well, that person, they gave me rubbish mm. advice, that's it, never again. Childlikeness goes, hey, we're all children. <laughs> Sometimes we'll get some things wrong and we'll probably say some unhelpful things, but I'm going to still keep recognizing that he's the mum, my heavenly father's driving, I'm going to stay with my seatbelt on, following here. And the more we rely on the faithfulness, the presence and the power of God, the more his glorious beauty is revealed and the more we learn to delight in the glories of God. You see, the more childlike we become, the more we inherit the kingdom. Children are dependent. And if we want to inherit the kingdom of God, so must we be. And another aspect of childlikeness, and this is so crucial to grasp because it's so liberating, is that children expect to be accepted. And then you notice that children expect to be accepted. My four-year-old is totally sure he's accepted. He is not timid about his acceptance. He bounces into every single situation totally confident that he's in the right place, even when it's three in the morning and it's our bedroom. (laughs) And in those moments, he bounces in. He's like, he doesn't timidly knock on the door. Please, may I come in and jump in bed with you? He just comes, you literally hear him running down the corridor. Bang, door bursts open. Ta-da! I'm here! And because I'm sinful by nature, get the out of my bedroom. And I always manage to stop myself from saying what I really think. But I'm like, get out, go away. Our Heavenly Father is not like that. He can come bounding in at three in the morning, three in the afternoon, any other time, totally confident that we are accepted. See, my four year old's got no self doubt. He knows his value. He knows that whatever he asks, pretty much he's going to get. He certainly knows he's going to get affirmation and welcome and love. He isn't insecure about it. He hasn't worked that out yet because he hasn't grown up. We grow up. We get insecure about it. To be childlike is to be completely confident in the love of God and the acceptance that we get from our Heavenly Father and the cross this ransom, this redemption shows us the extent to which we are accepted and valued. Because the cross shows you that you are valued at your worst. God says over every single one of you, I have seen you at your worst. And yet at that very moment, look how much you mean to me. I love you at your worst and I delight in you. And a consequence of the redemption is that we are now in Christ. We are wrapped in robes of righteousness. And another consequence of that is that God the Father can never and will never think of you in anything other than the same terms that he thinks of Jesus. So what does God the Father think of me when I sin? What does he think of me then? He thinks of me in those moments exactly the same way as he thinks of Jesus when he does not sin. Wow. The incredible liberating consequence of the redemption and the grace of God of the cross. 
I, therefore, not because of my own strength or my own power or my own abilities or anything else, but because of the perfect work of Jesus, expect to be accepted by my heavenly Father. If you have too high a view of yourself, of course it'd save me. You're not spiritually childlike. But if you have too low a view of the love of Jesus for you, you're not spiritually childlike either because you've not seen your value. And the redemption of the blood of Jesus shows you your value. You need to see the meaning. You need to see the depth. You need to see the beauty of ransom and drive it into your heart, into your soul again and again and again, that I will not grow old, but I will be childlike and receive my inheritance in the kingdom of God because my father is for me. He loves me. He delights in me. And the cross, the redemption, the ransom is proof and evidence all that I need. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you so much for the cross, for the work of ransom, for the work of redemption. I want to thank you that we can't get there, receive the kingdom by ourselves, without the cross, without Jesus. I want to thank you that the decision to follow you is not a light one, it's costly, but it is so, so worth it. It's so, so worth it. I want to Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the incredible truth, the incredible reality of all that you have done for me. Verse 24 of Mark 10 says, And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Lord, teach us what it is to be last. Teach us what it is to delight in this gospel. Teach us what it is to be children. Teach us to never take for granted this good news of the gospel, to never just get so familiar with you being a ransom for us that we, it loses its power, it loses its beauty, it loses its meaning. Teach our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.